Good morning, new community. Thank you, worship team. It's really good to be with you this morning as we wrap up your sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. I invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn, turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Uh, if you are new to the Bible or unfamiliar with it, it's uh, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Uh, before we read the passage, I want to say thank you, New Community, for your uh, partnership in ministry with New Community Covenant Church in Bronzeville. Uh, in particular, uh, over the course of the summer, some of you have come and served at the community garden uh, that our nonprofit organizes every summer. Can you raise your hand if you were, aside from Janet, I know Janet is like one of our leaders. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and if you didn't get to this summer, they should next summer, right, Janet? They should come next summer and volunteer at the garden. It's literally the best place to be in Chicago on a Saturday morning in the summer. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your partnership. Um, a few of you asked about our facility uh, search. Thank you for asking. Thank you for praying for us as we search for a permanent facility to purchase. Uh, some of you will remember that we were looking very seriously at an old Catholic building. That fell through in June through an interesting series of, of events, and we are trusting that that was God's will for us. Uh, and now we are uh, looking seriously at another building on uh, Martin Luther King Drive. And so you can pray for us. We've done our initial due diligence. We are in the middle of trying to understand insurance costs right now. Apparently it can be more expensive to insure buildings that are landmarked as historic. So we're, we're trying to figure that out. But Lord willing, I believe within the next couple of weeks, we should have a sense of whether God is calling us to, to continue or not. So, so please do keep praying for us uh, in that. Uh, we have been praying for you, new community. Uh, we have been praying and thanking God for your ministry, thanking God for the, the, the new folks who have been uh, worshiping with you and jumping into service with you, the way you are bearing beautiful witness to our Lord Jesus uh, in your community. We are uh, so, so grateful for that. We're grateful for the incredible ministry staff and leadership team and pastoral search folks who are, are leading you so well uh, right now. Uh, some of you have been attending this church um, and, and you've never known this church to actually have a senior pastor. And you're like, it seems like we're doing fine without a senior pastor. And if I can just say that is evidence of God's kindness and God's grace and God's goodness to you. So many women and men who just out of uh, the way that the spirit has gifted them leading you so, so well. Uh, and so I know that a pastoral search brings up sort, all sorts of questions and wonderings and exciting emotions and maybe some anxiety as well. Uh, I, I join you in trusting that God has, has led you really, really well over the past few years and is continuing to lead you well in this search process as well. And I'm excited uh, when this person gets to be announced to celebrate uh, with you. But I do want to just pray for you real quick uh, in regard uh, to these next few weeks as you are continuing to discern. So let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, we give you... Uh, praise and thanks for your faithfulness 
We thank you that you are a God who does not stand at a distance from our process. Uh, You do not stand at a remove from our questions and uh, the complexities of our experiences. You are to be found in the middle of all of it with us. And I thank you that this is a congregation that can testify that you are a faithful God, not in theory, uh, but in the middle of all that life uh, throws our way. So, Lord Jesus, would you continue to show yourself faithful? Would you uh, take all of the honor and the glory for yourself in these weeks to come? Would you be the one, the center, that continues to uh, call this congregation to yourself? Would you give them great wisdom? Would they hear from you? Would you use whatever mechanisms you would desire, Holy Spirit, uh, to provide uh, a clear direction as they continue to seek you and listen to you in the days ahead? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, Would you mind, if you're able, standing as we read God's word together, Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. I'm reading uh, this morning from the New Revised Standard Version, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding attendants fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it onto an old garment. Otherwise, not only will the one tear the new garment, but the piece from the new will not match the old garment. Similarly, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will spill out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says, the old is good. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So from this passage, I'll preach this morning from the title... The living Christ. Raise your hand if you've ever tried to change a habit. If anybody's hand's not up, we want to know either your secret to a contented life or how it just comes naturally to you. Um, But if you have, if, if you, for example, ever tried to add exercise to your daily rhythm or to remove an unhealthy substance from your life or or try to spend more time with people who genuinely care for you. If, if you've ever really tried to change a habit, you know that success is more likely if your vision for change is greater than your ability to make the change. For example, you might be motivated to show up faithfully to your recovery group because you have a vision for being the kind of parent you never had. You might maintain your regular jog through the Chicago winter because you want to live the year's heart disease robbed from your friend. If you've ever successfully changed a habit, it's likely because you discovered that your self-discipline wasn't enough to do the job. You needed something more powerful. 
In our passage, we find a group of people committed to the spiritual discipline of fasting. The vision which motivated the Pharisees and others was of God intervening in their circumstances, intervening by sending a Messiah who would defeat Rome, cleanse the temple, and bring the exiles home. They had found a motivation, a vision powerful enough to animate their discipline of regular fasting. So they were confused when Jesus' disciples didn't join them. In these verses, Jesus responds to their confusion. He taught that it was inappropriate for his disciples to fast as long as he was with them. This morning, we'll close this series on the spiritual disciplines by considering fasting. Aside from the fact that it was assigned to me, why talk about fasting, Pastor Tim? (laughs) Two reasons why I think we ought to consider it this morning. First, it's been my experience that there is considerable confusion when it comes to fasting. For some, fasting is a form of legalism that Christians should leave behind. For others, fasting is a way to gain God's favor. Both are a misunderstanding of Christian fasting. The second reason I think it's good to end this series considering fasting is that it can help us consider our posture toward the spiritual disciplines more broadly. So with that in mind, here's our big idea this morning. Here's the thing I hope we'll walk away with. Transformational disciplines lead to the living Christ. For spiritual disciplines to transform us, for any spiritual discipline to transform us, they must lead us to the living Christ. Transformational disciplines lead to the living Christ. In the same way that any genuine change requires a power beyond our self-discipline, so the spiritual disciplines must bring us to the living Christ if we are to actually be transformed. If we are to grow to be more like Jesus Christ in how we love and how we live, we must be brought to the living Christ. So if Christ alone, the living Son of God, if Christ alone can transform us, how precisely is it that the spiritual disciplines lead us to Christ? Well, using Jesus' teaching here about fasting... I want to suggest three ways that the spiritual disciplines lead us to Christ. First, they do so by telling the time. Second, they do so by preparing our hearts. And third, they lead us to Christ by clarifying our loyalty. Telling the time, preparing our hearts, and clarifying our loyalty. So, first, transformational disciplines lead to the living Christ by telling the time. The Pharisees were fasting here in expectation, in anticipation. In Scripture, we find that fasting generally happens in response to what I want to call the gaps. 
The gaps between how things are and how they should be. The gap between our experience of injustice and the justice that God meant for us. The gap between the righteousness we've been created for and the sinful brokenness in our own lives. The gap between the longing that we know is good and God-ordained and the actual experience of our lives. We fast in response to the gaps. For the Pharisees, as for most of their Jewish peers, fasting would typically last between one day and three weeks, depending on the circumstance, depending on the mandate. Now, here's the, here's the bad news for us. When they said fasting, they meant fasting. I know some of us, when we talk about fasting, we'll say, well, I'm fasting from social media. I'm fasting from sugar. I've heard people say, I'm fasting from discouragement. Okay, none of that is fasting. Now, you can abstain from things as a spiritual practice. That's a good thing. But friends, in Scripture, fasting always has to do with food. Fasting means abstaining from food. Again, those other things can be good, can be helpful. It's not what is being discussed in the passage this morning. The Pharisees are fasting in anticipation. The gap that they are responding to is God's promised Messiah who would come one day and the fact that the Messiah had not come yet. They were fasting in anticipation and expectation of a day when Roman occupation would end, when the temple would be cleansed, and when the exiles would be brought home. The need to fast in that moment was so obvious it hardly needed to be stated. So why are Jesus' disciples not fasting? And so Jesus answers with a parable. He says, well, if you were at a wedding, you wouldn't expect the wedding guests to fast. Because the day of celebration has arrived. The thing is happening. Now maybe one day when the bridegroom has gone away... Maybe then you would fast, but not during the wedding. Jesus, in this parable, is the bridegroom. Jesus' answer to this question is not, my disciples don't fast. It's, my disciples don't fast today because I'm here. Because the bridegroom is here. Because the Messiah has come. Because the thing you were fasting in anticipation of has happened. Because the gap you were responding to has been closed. My disciples don't fast today. It's as though Jesus were telling the Pharisees, you don't know what time it is. You're confused about what time it is. You are living as though the Messiah hadn't come. But the time has come. The Messiah is here. When are we? We're used to asking, where are we? Have you ever had the experience when you're traveling and you pull up your map app and all you see is the gray screen with grid lines and the little blue GPS dot? If you've not had that experience, it's uh, troubling, especially when you don't know where you are. Because that little blue dot does nothing for you when it doesn't tell you where you are. There's no way to know where to go if you don't know where you are. 
Maybe you forgot to update your data. Maybe you're in another country and you don't have the SIM card yet. But that gray screen and little blue dot is completely unhelpful because you don't know where you are. When are we? In the same way that we have to know where we are if we're going to know where we're going, in order to know how to live as Christians, we need to know when we are. We need to know the time. The Pharisees thought their when was pre-Messiah. And so they were fasting when they should have been feasting because they misunderstood their times. When are we? I've noticed two misunderstandings about our when as Christians, as Jesus' followers today. Some of us, we, we live as though Jesus has already returned. We, we, we live as though after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has come back. And what I mean by that is some of us look around the world and we see things that are wrong and we, we say we need to fix those things and we do our best for about a good week or month or year and then we get tired and we get frustrated and we get discouraged and so we stop. We identify something in our life that isn't how it should be and we do our best to fix that thing on our own and then it seems so lodged that we just give up and we say, well, that's just how it's going to be. We are acting as though the world is as it is meant to be. We are acting as though Jesus has come back and restored things to how they are going to be. But Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble as we await his return. Others of us, we live as though Jesus were still in the grave. We, we, we live as though Jesus died for our sin, but has not resurrected in victory. And so we survey our circumstances personally or in our world, and we get so overwhelmed by how bad things appear to be that we just disengage. And I want to suggest that either discouragement or disengagement is a misinterpretation of when we live. When we live is between the resurrection and the return. We live between Christ's resurrection and, between, and before his return. We live before Jesus has renewed all things, but we live after Jesus has resurrected in victory over sin, death, and the devil. Somebody say amen. These are the times in which we live. This is our when. Which is to say that there will be times when we fast in response to what is wrong. We will fast in response to the gaps. And there will be times when we feast that our Lord Jesus is to be found with us even in the gaps. We will both fast and feast when we understand when we live. Fasting, friends, reminds us of when we are. We are rapidly approaching I was going to say, we're approaching the Christmas season. I think we're already in the Christmas season. If you pay attention to stores and what your neighbors are putting out right now. And, 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 and for our society, Christmas, the season of Christmas, says to us, you can have everything you want now. If you work hard enough, if you spend enough, if you're willing to go enough into debt, if you plan far enough ahead, you can have the perfect Christmas experience now. Interestingly, Christians throughout history around the world have understood the few weeks before Christmas to actually be a time of reflection. 
and repentance. The Advent season for Christians has been a time to fast, to abstain, to reflect, to clear away some of the clutter. Basically, the the total opposite of how so much of our society approaches Christmas Day. It is a time to remember that there once was a moment when Christ had not yet been born. To place ourselves in the shoes of our spiritual ancestors as they looked forward with longing and anticipation. And it is a time to remember that we too wait with longing and anticipation our Savior's return when all will be made well and right. And then comes Christmas. And it's a feast. And it's a genuine feast. You don't wake up on December 26th going, oh my God, how much money did I spend over the past month? We wake up instead to the feast that is our Lord's birth, the incarnation of the Son of God. Fasting is an embodied prayerful response to Christ's presence with us in the gaps, in the brokenness. Fasting invites us to draw near to Jesus in those places of brokenness, in our own hearts and in the world as well. One of the things that I've noticed in our own church community over the past few weeks is it feels to me as though, though many of us are just walking around with a, a kind of low-grade, profound discouragement about the way the world is right now. And, 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 and it can feel as though just the, the events of the world pile up so high and so heavy that, that for many of those in our congregation, whether it's Israel and Gaza, whether it's the, the millions being di- displaced in the Democratic Republic of Congo, whether it's uh, migrants being, being uh, sent uh, to our city, whether they desire to be here or not, it, it feels so much, so complex, so overwhelming. And I want to suggest that this is actually one of the, the gifts that fasting gives to us. Because fasting allows us to pray with our whole bodies. Where your minds and your hearts are consistently being barraged by what is wrong, what is unjust, what is wicked, what is selfish. Fasting invites us to, with our entire embodied selves, to prayerfully respond, to feel in our flesh and our bones and our muscles the prayerful response to the gap between how God intends it to be and how it is today. So friends, recognize your own tendency to forget the time. Allow the spiritual discipline of fasting to tell you the time and in so doing to lead you to Christ. Second, transformational disciplines lead to the living Christ by preparing our hearts. Jesus says, today's not the day to fast, but the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. By pointing ahead, Jesus shows us how the spiritual disciplines are meant to prepare our hearts for the living Christ. The disciples need this time of feasting with Jesus. 
They, they, they need this time of, of spiritual intimacy and, and long conversations and long meals. They need this season of feasting because Jesus here hints that the time is coming when he's going to be taken from them. There's a time coming where there will be betrayal where there will be unrest, where there will be crucifixion, where there will be suffering. And the disciples need this season of feasting to prepare their hearts for what's coming. Likewise, Jesus says, there will come a time when I have been taken from them that it will be appropriate to fast. In that season, the disciples will be fasting in anticipation to prepare their hearts for Christ's return. They will be fasting to prepare their hearts to live faithfully in the gap between Jesus' resurrection and his return. Fasting, as with the other spiritual disciplines, prepare our hearts. The feasting that they were enjoying with Jesus prepared their hearts for Christ's suffering. And fasting, well, it prepared them for faithfulness until Jesus would return. Human beings need preparation. None of us here like change. Even if you're the one initiating change, you probably don't love it. The only change that most of us in here like can adapt to real quickly is if you get an email tomorrow morning saying, we're bumping your salary by 20%. Like that change, you can adjust yourself to pretty quickly. But about anything else, we need time. And that's what it means to be human. We live in a very technological age, and so we end up using mechanical metaphors to describe our humanity. We crash. We need to be rebooted. We, we run down. We, 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 if we're not careful, imagine ourselves through a kind of machine-like metaphor that suggests that you should just be able to flip the switch. And I should feel something different or do something different or live in a different kind of way. But you are a human being, a living creature. Scripture uses biological language to describe us. We are streams, we are wells, we are fields, we are like yeast. We need to be prepared for whatever it is that God wants to do in our lives. There is no flipping the switch. Uh, one of the people who's been at our church a very long time, she began coming very early on in our, our, our church's life, uh, his name is Marquita, Marquita Sconiers. And, and Marquita became our worship leader and she became our first director for our nonprofit. And, and Marquita and I, have, we have been in the trenches together for over a decade. We have done good ministry together um, for, for many, many years now. And, and I have loved, loved, loved the chance to serve with her. And a few years ago, I noticed that, that Marquita started to drop some hints. First, it was about transitioning out of the role of executive director. And, and then it was about transitioning out of the role of, of uh, leading worship for us. And, and then it was about moving from Chicago down to Charlotte. You see, Marquita understands that her pastor is not a machine. <laughs> that I needed some time. <laughs> to be prepared for these transitions. And so while I still don't like the fact that Marquita will soon be moving to North Carolina, she's prepared me well. I can now see God's movement in her life. I can bless her, I can thank her, and we will send her well. We need to be prepared. Our hearts need to be prepared for what Christ is doing. The disciplines alone do not transform us. Fasting will not transform you, but they can prepare our hearts for Christ's transformation. 
A farmer cannot cause the seed to grow. Farmer can't think hard enough, can't meditate hard enough, can't say the right words to make a seed grow. Only God can make a seed grow. But what can a farmer do? The farmer can till the soil. The farmer can take out the weeds that might overrun the plants. The, the, the farmer can put up little plastic tenting so that the frost doesn't destroy the seedlings as they're coming up. The, the farmer can water the field and chase away the pests. There's a lot of preparing that the farmer can do so that the soil has been prepared for the growth of the seed. Christians have understood this need to have our hearts prepared over the course of Christian history. Our church calendar builds in rhythms of feasting and fasting. I think probably because most of us wouldn't just choose to fast on our own. I am amazing at talking myself out of fasting. Like, I'm pretty sure Jesus is asking me to, but maybe, I don't know, maybe not. And so the church has built into our calendar these rhythms where we say, no, you have to feast. There will be times to fast as well. Advent and Lent are the, the primary seasons of fasting in the church calendar. Seasons of preparing our hearts, not just arbitrarily. For Advent, it's to prepare our hearts to once again be overwhelmed by the incarnation of the Son of God. And for Lent, it is to be prepared that we would worship the crucified and resurrected king on Easter morning. These seasons prepare our hearts to welcome the living Christ. So my invitation here is that you would simply embrace the fact that you are a human and not a machine. That there is no flipping a switch. That your heart does need to be prepared. When we fast, we are acknowledging and we are honoring our humanity. When we fast, we are honoring the way God made us as people who need to be prepared for what God wants to do in our lives. Finally, transformational disciplines lead to the living Christ by clarifying our loyalty. Jesus answers the Pharisees' question, and then he starts telling some parables. And we should admit that these are not straightforward, easily interpreted parables. Jesus says that you shouldn't tear a piece of cloth off a new garment to use to sew a hole in the old garment because then both will be ruined. Neither should you put new wine in old wineskins because the old wineskins will explode and the wineskin and the wine will be ruined. And, and oh, by the way, old wine is better than new wine. Scholars disagree on what Jesus is doing here. Some would say, well, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's aligning himself with the tradition. He's saying, look, the old thing that God has been doing is good, and I'm carrying that through. Other people say, no, what, what Jesus is doing here is saying, look, the Messiah has come. God's new age has broken into the world. I don't know who's right between those two interpretations. But here's what scholars agree on and what I think we can rest in today that Jesus is introducing a theme of incompatibility. Do you know what it means to be incompatible? Like if you put diesel fuel in your gas-powered car, 
your car is incompatible with diesel fuel. It won't work. Jesus here seems to be introducing a theme of incompatibility. The new garment is incompatible with the old. The, the old wineskin is incompatible with the new wineskin, with the new wine. The new wine is incompatible with the old wine. The Pharisees want Jesus' followers to fast. And Jesus says, no, fasting would be incompatible with the fact that I am here now. I wonder, though, do you think Jesus' disciples were still tempted to fast in that moment? I was like a weird question, right? Because how many of you are tempted to fast? I wonder, though. Like, everything around them was saying, no, we should be fasting. Everything they grew up with, all of the teaching, all of the expectation, all of the way their society was organized, everything that their eyes could see about Roman occupation, about the temple not being purified, about the exile still being sent away, everything said, no, we should be fasting right now. So I think if we're not careful, we read this and we're like, oh, yeah, I would have loved Jesus' teaching. I don't have to fast. I don't think that was the case. I think the disciples found themselves in a place of tension. Maybe we should be fasting. I mean, the Pharisees know what they're talking about. John the Baptist was serious about this thing. Maybe we should be fasting too. There had to have been pressure on them. There had to have been pushback coming from every direction. There had to have been very few people affirming their decision not to fast in the way that everybody else was. I want to suggest that the only way the disciples could feast instead of fast is if they believed that Jesus truly was the Messiah. That would be the only logical way to get their minds around the fact that we are not fasting when everybody else is. Only if Jesus was the Messiah and only if they were loyal to him above anybody or anything else. I think in that moment the disciples' loyalty was being tested. A day would come when they would fast, but again, in, in that day it would also be because of their allegiance to Jesus for whom they now anticipated and longed for. When you and I practice spiritual disciplines, we are clarifying our loyalties. Think, for example, of the spiritual discipline of Sabbath keeping. Most of your neighbors are working for the weekend, are earning up vacation time, are putting in more hours than are required of them, are measuring value and self-worth by how much gets accomplished and are socializing with those in similar status categories based on income. But the Christians, the Christians begin with Sabbath worship and rest. We don't earn our rest. We work from our rest. We don't earn our Sabbath. We allow Sabbath to orient our entire lives. We don't, we don't silo Sabbath into just a few hours. We allow the, the themes of God's grace and gift and mercy to infiltrate our entire lives. Sabbath keeping can clarify our loyalties. So can our generosity. We live in a society built on a scarcity mentality where we scramble to get what is ours and then to protect it from someone else who might try to take it from us. The Christians, though, follow the way of Jesus. Jesus who says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Generosity clarifies our loyalty. This is what spiritual disciplines can do for us. They give us the opportunity to confess our compromised loyalties. Here's what you can know for sure. Every single person in this room today has compromised loyalties. There is none of us who don't. The only question is whether you and I have the clarity to see and confess our compromised loyalties so that we can turn back to Jesus. This is what the disciplines allow us to do. Let's say it very plainly. Jesus is never meant to be one loyalty among others. Our allegiance to Jesus is meant to reorganize all our other allegiances and loyalties. Scripture tells us that our God is a jealous God. This is not from a place of insecurity or anxiety. God is jealous out of love. God understands that the other loyalties, the idols and the idolatries which capture our attention, always end up enslaving us. And yet they are also so good at normalizing their existence so we don't even notice them. And so we need the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines to reveal the incompatibility of our allegiance to Jesus and to any other Lord, to any other idol, to any other ideology. How does this work? Well, let's just say, for example, that your leadership team said, hey, new community, this Advent, we're all going to fast. I'm not suggesting you should do that. I'm just saying, what if? In that moment, the list of reasons why you couldn't or shouldn't would be revealing for you. Maybe you couldn't or shouldn't, but at the very least, it would be revealing, wouldn't it? Uh, what if, what if as, a, as, a, as a part of that announcement, they said, and, and in addition to food, we're asking you to abstain from alcohol for all of Advent. And if in that moment you say, I'm not sure I could really make it the week without my nightly little bit of bourbon before bed, that would reveal something about your loyalties. If they said, in addition to fasting, Pastor Tim, we're going to, Reduce our screen time. We're going to try to stay off our devices and computers and, and televisions when we're not working. And you say, well, I, but I need that scroll time before I go to sleep. I need that outlet that porn provides a few times a week. This is what fasting and other of the disciplines can do for us. They reveal our divided loyalties our allegiances, and where those things have entrapped us and made us captive. They cannot free us, but they can bring us to the point of confession where we are led to the living Christ who always will free us. I am convinced that it is this dynamic that causes so many of us to avoid the spiritual disciplines because it's hard to admit our divided loyalties. But friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is never about our perfection. It's always about our confession. It's never about our self-righteousness. It's always about Christ's righteousness. 
And so we are able freely and confidently to confess time and time again our divided loyalties because it's in our confession that we are brought again to the living Christ. So do not be afraid to confess your divided loyalties as the disciplines reveal them to you. This is where you will meet the living Christ. Transformational disciplines lead to the living Christ by clarifying our loyalties. Is it Bryce who's on keys? Did I remember Bryce's name right? You want to come on up, Bryce, wherever Bryce is? No. Sorry, I, Bryce, I, I, was, I should have looked back in that direction. We're almost done, friends. Only our Lord Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, can transform us. The spiritual disciplines cannot, but they can lead us to the one who can. And wouldn't we want to take advantage of everything possible that would lead us to the source of our transformation? Think back again to those fasting Pharisees. They, they disciplined their bodies to prayerfully anticipate the arrival of the Messiah. Their, their spiritual disciplines distracted them from the presence of their Lord. So focused had they become on bringing about transformation by their own effort that they missed that the object of their longing had arrived. But friends, while we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, his presence through the Holy Spirit is with us now. We are just as prone as the Pharisees to get distracted, to wrongly assume the burden of transforming our lives or this world. And yet the living Christ abides with us. Our very lives have been hidden with him. The living Christ today stands ready again to transform our lives and through us, the world. We might get confused about when, we are living. But our living Christ is present to orient our actions and our emotions, our plans and our dreams to our unique time between the resurrection and his return. It is a time when we will have trouble and when we will experience Christ overcoming our trouble. It is a time when we will be hard-pressed and when we will experience the living Christ at the center of that pressure. It is a time when we will know hardship, when we will know affliction, and when we will experience that Christ Jesus has taken onto himself everything that tries to separate us from the love of God. Not only are we prone to confuse the time, we are also a people whose hearts are susceptible of becoming hard. For some, our hard hearts are a defense mechanism against the barrage of heartbreak that this world exposes us to every single day. For others, our hearts are not so much hard as they are scarred, beating mutedly beneath layers of protective tissue from experiences of trauma and grief. But the living Christ 
has come to transform our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, to heal us back into the tender, vulnerable, intimate people God created us to be. So committed was the living Christ to our healing that he took onto himself our bruised and broken flesh. So committed was the living Christ to our salvation that he allowed the sin that had corrupted our hearts to coalesce around his own. So profoundly and so thoroughly was the living Christ committed to our eternal and abundant life that he, the living Son of God, the creator who breathed life into all that has been created, the one who just is life, that this living Christ surrendered himself to death. I know that some of us this morning are weighed down by a defensive and a scarred heart of stone. But the Son of God, who spoke galaxies into existence, who breathed humanity into being, who spoke forgiveness over sin and victory over the devil and resurrection over the grave, this is the God who stands ready to transform your heart this morning. And if we admit that we get confused about the times, that our hearts are prone to hardness, we may as well make our confession complete and acknowledge that our allegiances have been compromised. For while we sing Sunday songs about the Lordship of Jesus, while we make a bit of convenient space for Christian activity, while we are quick to mention the characteristics of our faith which will resonate with our ideological companions, we must admit that our loyalty to Jesus is oftentimes just one among many. We have made the bargain that Jesus was simply speaking hyperbolically, that we are the ones who have figured out the middle way to worship God and mammon, God and comfort, God and affluence, God and respectability, God and security, God and partisanship, God and, and, and. But the spiritual disciplines are the blunt reminder we need that our God will not be mocked, that he tolerates no rivals, not because God is some apprehensive and insecure version of ourselves, but because ours is the saving God and the liberating God who will not watch as our divided loyalties enslave us, as the gods of our own making reduce us to captives and addicts. Disciplines like fasting will not rescue us from our compromised allegiances, but they will make them plain so that we might have the opportunity to confess and repent our way back to the living Christ who stands ready to welcome his double-minded children. So do not let your hearts be troubled by your divided loyalty, by your compromised devotion. Your salvation has never come by way of your unwavering dedication. 
but only through your honest confession. Even better, the God who desires to heal your heart, to comfort your mind, and to refresh your strength. This God does not stand at a distance from the wreckage of our idols and ideologies. No, Jesus Christ walked into our chaos and our captivity. The living Christ stands this morning amidst our lifeless loyalties which have captured our affection and our allegiance and he will welcome us home every single time. So will you let yourself be led to the living Christ? There is no heartbreak he cannot heal. There is no sin he cannot forgive. There is no shame he cannot remove. There is no cynicism he cannot dismantle. There is no grief he cannot comfort. There is no longing he cannot satisfy. There is no frailty he cannot defend. So will you let yourself be led to the living Christ? There is no sorrow he has not known. There is no betrayal he has not experienced. No exhaustion he has not felt. No suffering he has not endured. It was for you. It was for your complete transformation. It was for your resurrection from death unto light that the God who just is life surrendered to our death. That the God who just is holiness abandoned himself to the consequences of our sin. That the God who just is righteousness and justice allowed the weight of wickedness and injustice to crush him on Calvary. Will you let yourself be led to the living Christ? His triumph over sin, death, and the devil wasn't meant to make your life just a little bit better. Wasn't meant to add just a bit of spirituality to help you make it through your days. Wasn't meant to numb your desires for what is good and beautiful and true. No, when the living Christ rose in victory from the grave, he arrived with a transformation mandate with a resurrection agenda. And so will you let yourself be led to the living Christ today?